is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with my friend Brian Featherstonehill. He's the author of The Long View, career strategies to help you start strong, reach high, and go far. Look, I know, a career book, ugh, I've read so many bad career books, you probably have too, both when you're in high school and undergrad and grad school, whenever, and they've always been kind of useless. But the reason I wanted to talk to Brian was he has a great career. He's the CEO of Ogilvy One. He's got you know a lot of experience in the corporate world in a career creative niche that's a highly coveted field and this is based on what he's hiring for what he's looking for in senior leaders and new people in his companies we talk a lot about the value of reframing your experiences whether you just rebooted your career your returning mother coming back into the workforce or you're fresh off the college boat and you want to get into something we talk about career inventories career math meaning looking at the different stages of your career and what you need to do in each one and something called career fuel which involves skills, resolving conflict, meaningful experiences, networks, and enduring relationships. There's a lot here. So enjoy this one with Brian. And with that, welcome to The Art of Charm. We bring together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, in your relationships, and at work. If you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the toolbox where we discuss things like body language and nonverbal communication, persuasion, networking, negotiation, mentorship, and everything else we teach here at AOC. In the United States, just text CHARMED to 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. Everywhere else, go to the artofcharm.com. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all the right questions. All right, here's Brian Featherstonehouse. First, when I heard of this book, when I heard of the project, I thought, I don't know, a career book? There's so many career books out there. I've read so many terrible career books, even when I was in high school, when I was in undergrad, when I was in law school. None of them had any basis in reality. And I think a lot of career books are written by people whose job it is to give career advice in maybe a public institution or something like that, and they're not necessarily in touch with the real market and the real decision-making processes that result in hires, promotions, and successful careers. But as a top executive at Ogilvy, why write a career book? It seems kind of out of left field. I mean, you have a great career, but why write about it? Well, I really sense, uh, Jordan, that there was this huge appetite for something that was not theoretical, that was totally based in reality and based in some, you know, observations over the long term, but also very resonant to today. So I really tried to write something based on my own experience, my own career. I've seen, you know, hundreds and hundreds of senior leaders uh, operate. We've got over 5,000 staff around the world in our own company. The average age in our company is 28. So just so many people dealing with the reality of careers, not the theory of careers. Yeah, I think that that's a really big deal because we've been sold a lot of information marketed to by everything from colleges and universities to certain types of trade programs, but it's not always really a good thing to necessarily get more or different types of training based on the marketing that you get. And I feel like a lot of people go into the working world, I know that's how I did, fully unprepared, completely unprepared. And I'd never heard of some of these concepts that you write about, and that's what made this really interesting for me especially was, I've never seen anybody give really good career advice who's already still in a successful career and how to, of course, create a plan and bring it to life. And I love these concepts like career fuel, 
and career math, which all made me think differently, even as an entrepreneur. So I'd love to get into that a little bit. When I'm coming out of school or when I'm transitioning from one career to another, how do I even make a plan? If I'm young or just perhaps going through school now, how do I make a plan? When I was coming out of school, I had no idea how hiring worked. I had no idea how getting promoted would work or finding jobs and niches inside companies. I just had no idea any of that even really existed and nobody was really talking about it. So in sort of living in that black box, how do we then create a plan without enough info or how do we get the right information? Well, it's so interesting. You know, by the time we finish college, for example, we probably spent, uh, you know, 15,000 hours getting educated and almost none of us have any clue how to do a career strategy. So it's a bit ironic that we get to the end of the game and we're about to start this, you know, incredibly long career and we're not super well prepared. So I've got a couple of pieces of fundamental advice. Number one is you've got to get into the right mindset for a career. And there's an exercise I call career math, which is just asking yourself, you know, five questions that helps you appreciate what the task ahead is as you start to plot out career strategy. There's another exercise I call, which is doing a career inventory. And you mentioned this notion of career fuel, and it's really taking stock, not of the technical skills that you have, but the deep, longer term, transportable kinds of skills that you've built up over time. There's another exercise called the personal time portfolio, which is based on how you're actually spending your time in the course of a week, how much is on work and chilling with friends and family and learning and other stuff. So there's a couple of basic exercises that are really foundational to plotting out a career path and then coming back to it. It's not once and done. You really need to build it like a muscle set that you can use over the course of your long career. Let's talk a little bit about the career math, because when I saw this, I kind of, I was surprised at the results, and I guarantee you that other people will be as well. I guess I'd never thought about the length of the career and how weighted it is towards the sort of later in the game years, especially when it comes to wealth building. Can you speak to that a little bit? Career math is five questions, and it fundamentally exposes that most people miss how long careers are. They focus too much on the short term, and they miss the big picture. Question number one, I encourage people just take the number 62 and deduct your current age. So if you're 30, the answer is 32, et cetera, et cetera. So basically what this is, this number, the answer to question one is the number of years that you have left until early retirement. So most people are absolutely shocked, you know, especially people in their 20s. They got 30, 35, they could have 40 years left of career. And that's the big point. And remember, 62 is early retirement, the actual average retirement age in established economies like the United States and in Canada is like 65 and it's getting longer. So point number one is, wow, is it ever a long period of time? Why is it so important to even realize how long our career path is? Because it seems like, oh yeah, so what? I got 30 years left. Why is that a big deal? Why is that important? You're a sprinter or a marathon runner. You make decisions on pacing, on preparation, on strategy based on how long the race is. How many winners of marathons are always sprinting ahead and winning after the first mile or kilometer? Almost none of them. None, yeah. When you appreciate the length of the journey, you're much, much better equipped to make good decisions along the way. 
partly to relax. It doesn't have to all happen by Tuesday, but also to really appreciate you've got to position yourself for victory that may be a little bit further down the road. There's stuff you can totally do right now, but it's with a view to making sure that you're still in the game and competing and doing terrifically well further on down the road. So most people miss it. They think short term and they make some bad strategy choices as a result. Yeah, I I can see that being very, very common, right? You think, well, okay, I'm only gonna be here for a few years, or I'm not sure how long this is, or even just short-sighted, soft-skill decision-making, like maybe, so what, I don't like this employer, I can burn this bridge, or I'll never have to deal with this person again. It's just so unlikely, given how long the span of a career really is. There's almost certainty that you're gonna run into some of those same people again, and it just gets you thinking about, instead of next quarter, the next decade, what you're doing now, how that's going to build up and, and lead to something to something else rather than making short-term sacrifice or like you said, the sprint or short-term negative decision-making, something that you know is a bad idea but will get you a one leg up for the short foreseeable future. Exactly right. So I don't expect anybody to have like a 40-year plan. That's crazy. But when you appreciate that the whole journey is out there, it's a really long trip you do start to make different decisions along the way and you do better prepare yourself for the long ride ahead. So question number two, very quickly, what percentage of your personal wealth do you think you'll accumulate after your 40th birthday? And I just encourage people just guess a percentage. Is it 30 or 50 or 70 or 10 or something else? And the answer for the average person in America, almost 90% of their personal wealth is accumulated after their 40th birthday. And most people totally miss it. They think that more than half is accumulated in the first half. And it's very, very back-end loaded. And partly, remember, question one, how many years of career do you have after your 40th birthday? 22, 24, 27, 29, 30? You've got a lot of years of career after your 40th birthday. They tend to be all the big ones. You also tend to have accumulated some savings. So Wealth accumulation is very, very back-end loaded. And the relevance of that is, once again, like the marathon runner, you need to position yourself to succeed in your 40s and 50s and 60s and maybe even beyond. And so you need to do some things early on in your career to equip yourself and prepare yourself for that big second half along the way. Yeah, and I, I wanna get into what those things are. I just wanna say, this was hugely relieving for me as a small business owner that there's much, much more on the back end because you just work so damn hard when you run your own your own company. You just feel like no matter, I'm, I'm sure no matter what I was compensated, I'd feel like I was working too hard. But I think for people that are in careers right now, a lot of folks that come through Art of Charm, our live programs and things like that, they come in to get clarity on the future. And I'll tell you, a lot of the guys in their 30s and early 40s, I don't want to use the word crisis because it sounds too dramatic, but they're coming to this kind of, realization that, uh uh-oh, some of the things that I'm supposed to be doing in order to get that back-end load, that career juice in the second half, maybe some of those things aren't in place and they start to try to make up for lost time, which is very difficult to do, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, you can sort of change the vector of your career along the way, but once again, you know, to use the marathon thing, if you've done things early on, you've managed your pacing, you've managed your nourishment, you got your energy in the right place, you're positioning yourself to do well in the second half. So there's lots and lots of things you can do 
to set yourself up for success along the way. So let's talk about it. I think a lot of us are familiar with the Malcolm Gladwell quote. It takes, you know, about 10,000 hours to really master something. And in my own experience, I agree. I've seen it happen with all kinds of skill sets in a career context. But let's remember what that is. What is 10,000 hours? 10,000 hours is basically doing something almost every day, every week of the year for like five years. So when people say, you know, I've done this assignment for 10 months and I really kind of mastered it, I call them out on it. I go, you haven't mastered it because it doesn't matter how talented you are. You've got to put in your hours to not be okay at it, not to dabble at it, but careers are often propelled by real mastery and expertise and really becoming a go-to person. That's when you start to create some momentum and what I refer to as fuel. So again, even if you're super talented, I discourage people from doing things in little one and two year shots, stretch them out a little bit into more meaningful, accountable chapters and make sure you're building towards something to master something. And it could easily take 10,000 hours along the way. So with the 10,000 hours, though, should we then worry about whether or not we are developing the right kind of skills? Because anybody can dive headlong into something that maybe only works in a certain narrow career silo. It might not be so good to spend time mastering those types of skills. Excellent point. I really encourage people to create transportable skills. There's so much uncertainty about companies and industries and jobs changing. You need to equip yourself in this 45-year journey to be able to move around industry to industry, company to company. And I encourage the development of transportable skills, things you can carry with you, mastery and expertise that isn't only applicable in one very specific job situation. So the best kinds of masteries are often these transportable skills and experiences that you can carry with you from one place to another. Okay, I wanna dive into that a little bit later and maybe flesh that out, but let's keep going with the five questions. Very quickly, question four, I ask people how many contacts do they have? You know, the combination of Facebook friends and LinkedIn connections, et cetera. And often people will quote me answers, you know, I got 1,000, I got 500, 800, 4,000, 2,000, whatever, which is great. I really encourage people to have lots of connections but it's not sufficient because the next question I ask is just a guess. How many people do you think you will meet in career heaven? Which means looking back after this big long ride, when people look back at their retirement parties and stuff, do they comment on the people who've really made a difference? And here's something I guarantee. They do not say, looking back, I'd like to thank my 1,356 LinkedIn connections. Right. What they do say is, you know what, there's two people, there's three people, there's four people. It's some number you can always count on the, the fingers of one hand. And the relevance and the contrast between question four, which is raw connections, and question five, which is the people that really make a difference to you, is that it's a quality game, not a volume game. So when people come to me and say, I'm maxing out on my connections and my Facebook friends, job is done, the job is not done. You need to get a higher quality, deeper relationship with a handful of people. They're the ones who will really make a difference over your long career. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's one of the main core skills at AOC here that we teach both through the show and our live programs is 
creating deep, enduring relationships and getting those champions. And I wanna blend this then into the career fuel, transportable skills, relationships, among other things in there. Let's deep dive into each one of these because I think building the career fuel is where a lot of us tend to stagnate, of course, because a lot of us are in the first stage of the career where we're building this. And can you give us a ballpark of what age group we're looking at when we're talking about building career fuel? I mean, I assume at some level you're building it throughout your entire career, but is it stacked more towards the beginning? It seems like it would be. So career fuel is what makes a difference to me between the leaders and the highly successful people over a long career compared to the rest of them. And career fuel, you have to build it throughout your entire career, but it definitely is front-end loaded. That first 15 years in particular, I encourage people, if you can end up that first 15 years, decade, 15 years, with a full tank of really abundant and diverse forms of career fuel, you're doing great. You are positioning yourself to reach high and go far further down the road. So let me just describe, there's three principal kinds of career fuel. Number one is what I refer to as transportable skills. And once again, these are the skills you can carry with you from job to job and industry to industry, country to country. And these are basics like, can you solve a problem? Are you a persuasive communicator? Do you know how to get things done? Do you know how to take intelligent risks? So it's not technical stuff and jargon stuff or things that can work in one company. But if you're building these great transportable skills, you're off to a great start. And as you say, you know, build them early and then later on you can refresh them and sharpen them and add them. But stage one should be really devoted to building this kind of fuel. It's a fantastic start. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates, all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, back to the show. Let's talk about types of transportable skills because this is where the concern arises for me. Looking back on it, this was one of the major realizations I came to when working on Wall Street because I didn't even realize that a lot of transportable skills even existed. And tell me what you think of this, Brian, because I was working there and I was plowing through legal documents and doing what everybody told me to do and going to meetings and trying to take notes when they gave lectures and all that stuff was extremely boring for the most part, although I was, I suppose, learning something about the job. But when I finally had asked Dave, the partner that hired me, and this is sort of my origin story that everyone's heard a million times, he told me that he he wasn't billing hours, he was generating relationships and therefore generating business, that was something that expanded my mind and told me that there was a third path, because in my mind there was work hard, get to the top, or be smarter than everybody, get to the top. I didn't realize there was the even the ability to create networks and mentors and champions and build soft skills. I just had no idea that even existed. So I think a lot of people might fall into the trap if they realize that transportable skills even exist, they might only think, okay, I need to get really good at coding in Java, that's a transportable skill. Okay, I really need to learn accounting practices, that's a transportable skill. That may be true, but are there soft skills in addition to some of these other transportable skills? Absolutely, so persuasive communication is a fantastic companion to hard skills that will differentiate you for a lifetime. So can you write a bit? Could you do a two-minute YouTube video that 10,000 people would view? Are you persuasive when you walk into a room and five or 10 minutes later, you've moved somebody from one point of view to another? So the whole persuasion and communications is one. The whole area of intelligence quotient and EQ and emotional intelligence is massively powerful. And most people kind of miss it. You know, they, they spend more time on some technical calculation or understanding the jargon and miss the ability to read a room, the ability to reassure people, the ability to build trust. These are incredibly powerful long-term skills. Another one that totally separates the best, best leaders I've ever met 
from the others is becoming a talent magnet. And we know people who are the smartest people in the room, but they don't carry other people with them. For some reason, they don't seem to be able to hire or develop or retain other high-performing talent. And I look across our industry and in my own career and other people I, I really respect, really top people are magnets. They bring people into the company. People want to work for them. It's something I call the eBay factor, which is if some talented person were given a chance to work with you, who would bid for you? Who wants to work with you? You know, the talented people have tons of choices. Do they want to work for you? And that's a massive bit of fuel that can be developed, a soft skill, as you describe it, but it's extremely differentiating because people who have talent magnetism, their own excellence is magnified over and over and over again. And whether the people who grow under these talent magnets stay exactly in that department or that part of the company, they'll go off and create excellence somewhere else. And it's a terrific one. So that's one that a little bit later in life I discovered, but I encourage everybody, your first couple of hires, the first couple of people that are working for you, really develop them and make sure that you're a magnet and amplifying their power and, and your power as well. I mean, this is the thought behind a lot of the bells and whistles you see at Silicon Valley workplaces where the salaries are great, but they're also there's this fun thing and there's that fun thing and you get access to this and it's got this cultural thing that appeals to a certain type of person because now the economy has become such that literally there's not enough money to keep giving people to work at certain companies because it loses its marginal value and real talent is looking for more. But beyond slides and margarita Wednesdays or whatever, I think what you're maybe saying here is it's much better to work with somebody who's got a powerful vision that really gives your work purpose and they can bring those people with them versus just trying to retain talent with a paycheck or worse, burning your talent out and then losing a bunch of people because maybe you can't keep a magnet but one left your company and took the entire XYZ department along with it. I think that's something that I see here in Silicon Valley, and I'd love to learn more about what makes someone a magnet or how we can make ourselves a magnet, because when I look at the soft skills that we mentioned before, a lot of workplaces aren't really teaching this, but they are hiring for it. It's easier for many places to hire for it than to try to teach it, which is why Art of Charm Live programs exist in the first place. I think some people are wired for it, but it is an acquirable, learnable skill. And it's partly just a sensitivity and the emotional intelligence to look at a job from the other end of the telescope. If you were 27 years old and highly ambitious with certain skill sets and expectations, would you want to work for you? And it's a tough question sometimes. And still, the belief in the boss is the most decisive factor in whether somebody stays or not. It's not money. It's the boss. And that's the inescapable truth about you as a leader if you don't get this eBay factor and this talent magnetism, you're going to be lonely. You are not going to amplify your power and your impact and your contribution to the organization. And it's a miss. You know, you're not going to be everything that you can be. So that's definitely, Jordan, one of these softer skills, but are incredibly useful and valuable in the course of a career. It seems like these would also be things that would make you stand out really well, because not everyone's developing it. So 
if you do manage to get it done and you do manage to get an edge on this, and we see this from some AOC alumni as well, they're maybe the only guy at their level that has an advanced knowledge or one of two or something at their level that has the ability to really perform in this area because it's something that people either develop over a long period of time or not at all. Very few go out and learn it and dedicate themselves to it. I ask people in interviews, especially senior people who have been around the track a little bit, tell me about your talent ledger. What do you mean? I mean, tell me about the people that you hired, that you thought were terrific, where are they now? What did you do to develop them? Did you hire them or did you inherit them? Et cetera, et cetera. And then tell me about the people that didn't perform under you. What did you do? And this notion of talent ledger, in about five minutes, I know if this person cares about talent or not. Some people will say, oh, well, you know, Jennifer and Raphael used to work for me. They become vice presidents in the company. One left the company to start up their own thing but they're industry leaders. We stay in touch. That's a beautiful thing. Other people go, gee, I don't know. They're dead because they don't have it. They don't care enough. And that is a trainable, learnable, and powerful skill. Jordan, there's one additional skill that's kind of counterintuitive. It's the ability to give and ask for help. And top leaders are fantastic at giving and asking for help. And a lot of people think that information and knowledge should be competitive and you don't give it away. And in my experience, and supported now by the work of Adam Grant and other people, the opposite is true. People who give knowledge away, who give access away, who give ideas away, can be happier and more competitively successful than others who don't. And a lot of times in an organization, I see someone who's a bit too narrow, a bit too closed, and they don't know how to ask for help and they don't know how to get other people to help them come up with better solutions. And the people who are more open source and more collaborative, I think, are winning with increasing frequency. So giving and asking for help is another counterintuitive one that's a great piece of fuel. Yeah, this is something that I struggled with a lot, of course, in the beginning as well. And a lot of people do because there's kind of different phases to learning how to network and create relationships, right? When you're first starting out, you're a kid, or at least emotionally so, and you're thinking, okay, where can I find people that can help me? And then there's another phase right after that where you realize the more you help other people, the more that stuff starts to come back to you. So you start helping other people a lot, and then somewhere in there, we go from only asking other people for help or never asking, to helping tons of other people and never asking for help, and then it takes a little bit of a push to get us to kind of jump off the high dive and be able to ask those same people that we just spent so much time helping or creating relationships with for that same help, and I don't know why that happens. I think we're just afraid to undo all of our hard work of being of value to others, but I agree with you. If you don't ask for help, you're only working one side of the equation, and you're really kind of handicapping yourself for no reason. 10 times a week, even as the CEO with 30 years of experience under my belt, I write an email that starts with, I need your help. And I will ask very senior people. I will ask people outside our company. I will ask 25-year-olds and 22-year-olds. It is something I've just learned that is incredibly valuable. I will ask for help and, very importantly, will offer to reciprocate. And often I'll prime the pump, I'll, I'll make the first move. So I need your help on topic X. Here's something I've been working on, thought this might be interesting or valuable to you. 
can you reciprocate with some area of expertise that you have? It is a fantastic skill set that I use to this day in a very two-way fashion. It works. What other types of career fuel are we talking about? There's uh, transportable skills. We, we got that. What about other types of experiences or, or relationships? I'm a big believer that acquiring meaningful experiences over the course of your career will kind of give you the inoculation and the vitamins so that your immune system, in a sense, is at a, operating at a very high level. So here's what I mean. We could all stay in the classroom, we could study all these technical things, or we could put ourselves out there, put ourselves outside our comfort zones, go launch a product, go host an event, go travel somewhere, take a risk, put yourself out on the line. Those meaningful experiences, maybe you've grown up in a corporate environment, go work in the e-commerce division work big, work small, go to Bangalore, all of these things collectively boost our immune system and make us less fragile because we're going to be attacked by change and adversity in the course of, you know, 40, 45 years. And you need to be not like a hothouse flower. You need to be robust and able to withstand and thrive on the other side. So I strongly encourage people get out of your comfort zone, feel some flop sweat. I love it when people, you know, put on a show or take some risks, take on a project that maybe has a, is not a guaranteed success and you will learn a ton and it will make you better equipped for the long haul. So meaningful experiences are great fuel as well. This jabs with my experience. I mean, I traveled overseas, lived overseas a lot. You and I talked pre-show about traveling to places like Bhutan and North Korea and things like that. And I do agree that there's a lot here that employers commented on, but I never really knew if it was a hiring decision thing. I always just thought it was more of a novelty. But I can see why this would be important because if you've got people who've done a whole bunch of different things, they're going to be able to innovate better generally, depending on what you're looking for. They're going to be able to adapt better And also, apropos our earlier conversation, which I thought was kind of almost like a joke at first, worrying about whether you're going to be replaced by a robot, the odds decrease the better you are at certain tasks, of course, but also the more wide your experience as well. And that sounds like a silly concern right now, but if you write code in a certain programming language all day and you haven't learned something newer or modern, it is very realistic that you could be replaced by something that automates large parts of what you do. There's no question. And in genetics, there's the the notion of hybrid vigor, where the introduction of these outside mutant genes and other genetic material makes you more robust and, and makes you more able to withstand bad news and bad conditions and thrive in different conditions. And the same is absolutely true in the career context. A buddy of mine is the head of all talent at WPP which is this massive 200,000-person marketing services company. It's the parent company of my company, Ogilvy One. And this fellow, Mark Lina, he, when he's looking at senior people, he looks for different types of experiences. He asks, has this person started up something? Has this person taken something established and made it better? Has this person taken a crappy, struggling business 
and improved it. So he's looking, in a sense, for meaningful experiences and this notion of hybrid vigor because those kinds of leaders are so much better equipped to deal with with change and adversity. Last but definitely not least, especially as far as Art of Charm is concerned, career fuel, enduring relationships, and you'd hinted at this before. Let's talk about relationships, because it's easy for me to say these things are important, they're important in your career, they're important in your life, and people, I hope, generally believe that or they wouldn't listen, but it's great to hear from somebody at the top looking down and saying, okay, this is one of the major keys, because I think a lot of people, even what they hear on the show, they still think, I can figure this out later, or I can work on that later. Right now I've gotta work on this aspect of my business, that element of my funnel or my business, and they really rarely do sit down and focus on these enduring relationships, and I think to their detriment. People who let this go by the wayside always find that it becomes a problem. I would say that enduring relationships is probably the most powerful form of career fuel and especially the enduring ones, there are a few really, really powerful ones that have lasting impact. Honestly, it's not something to wait till you're 40 or wait till you're 50 or wait till you're whenever. You can start building this ecosystem of relationships in your career. You can start it on day one. You can actually start it even before you start work. And it's this notion that you have not just one kind of person, as I say, it's not just how many LinkedIn connections you have, or do I have a mentor? It's this ecosystem of people that lives and breathes and grows with you and helps you propel you along the way. And I describe in the book, there's a number of different levels. Again, there's these raw connections, and they're great, but there's a next level up, what I call the community of experts. And these are people, again, that you can go to to get really good answers. So maybe you know somebody who's a finance wizard and another person who's awesome in sales and another person who has real sensitivity around, you know, creative or artistic topics and someone else knows a particular coding language, etc. There's this small and growing group of people, a community of experts who can help you come up with better answers. The next level up is what I call critical colleagues. And this is maybe like the 10 people who would make a big difference in your current job situation. And the obvious one is the boss. Who's your immediate boss? And what kind of a relationship do you have with that boss? Do they think you're an idiot? Do they think you're a genius? Uh, do they think you're lazy but smart? Do they think you're dumb but hardworking? What's your relationship with the boss? But there's other ones. You know, what does the boss's boss think of you? Maybe the boss's boss doesn't know anything about you, but you spilled, you know, chicken soup all over them in the elevator. When your boss goes to promote you or give you a raise, he's going to ask his boss for an opinion. And you want to make sure that it's neutral, if not quite positive. How do we do that? Because it might be hard to even gain access to our boss's boss, right? Maybe they don't know who we are because we never talk with them. I encourage to be patient. I wouldn't, you know, promote yourself uh, shamelessly on the boss's Facebook page. But why don't you go to your boss and say, what's important to his boss? Oh, he's really worried about, you know, connecting with millennials with our new consumer product. Oh, well, I'm a millennial. I'll tell you what, can you give me 30 days? And I would like to with you go to 
that guy, that boss, that woman above you, and do a five-minute presentation on how to connect that new consumer product with millennials. And in the next month, do your homework, study tons of authoritative sources, do some original research, do some thinking, create a five-minute presentation, rehearse it, time it, so that one day at the right timing, the appropriate moment, your boss goes with you and says, I want to introduce Jordan to you. And you know that thing you'd be worried about? If you give Jordan five minutes, he's got something to say. You can create that opportunity, but don't do it if all you have is unsubstantiated opinions. Go there with a totally rehearsed, prepared, brief, concise presentation. That's the way to get equity with your boss. And I see it happening all the time. I have people here in our company who come to me with really, really high quality brief content, and it changes my opinion of them. So you can do it. Now back to the show. This is really good because I think a lot of folks know, yeah, okay, getting good with my boss and my boss's boss, yeah, check, but how do I make it happen? I think looking at a problem that they're having, which you can figure out by asking your immediate boss and then figuring out proposals for solutions, potential solutions, or even just a presentation based on the problem itself to show that you really understand it seems like a really big potential win. Nobody else is doing that. No, and it might not work fabulously the first time. I'm telling you, those are like many examples of mastery. Quote the sources, corroborate your sources. Don't just make stuff up and give them opinions. Really do a thorough job, rehearse, check it out, buff it up, and find your five minutes and try it out. And people have found it very, very successful at differentiating themselves, but in a positive way based on substance and communication skills, not just, oh, I bumped into the boss and had a nice chat with him in the cafeteria. That's okay. That's nice light duty social stuff. Put your hand up to volunteer for an assignment. Hey, there's a new not-for-profit thing going on. Put your hand up. Do a great job. Package up your knowledge and you'll get a little bit of airtime, but with you where you can actually perform as opposed to sitting in a big room with 25 people and you put your hand up and ask an ill-prepared or ill-advised question, that's not going to help you get equity with the boss's boss. Yeah, I would imagine. It's an opportunity for you to look good or bad if you blow it, right? Yeah, usually bad, because the boss probably has 10 or 20 years of experience, and you are super wickedly smart, and you have a year or two. Somebody's probably tried your opinion before, and or you don't quite yet have the authority. But if you go away for 30 days, and chew on that topic, best sources, ask your friends, phone a lifeline, et cetera, et cetera, you're gonna have a quality product, and at least you've got a credible little bit of mastery that you can put in front of go, you know what, I don't agree with everything you say, that's pretty good, okay, let me try something else on you. What about how do I sell to people in China? And so on, you get the picture, you can build from that. Anything that gets you more responsibility from higher-ups is going to be good, generally, because if you become the go-to guy for these questions, that builds your career capital, and of course, also the relationship with the people that you're working with as well. What about career reboots, like mothers coming back to the workforce, people who 
decided I'm sick of being a telecom engineer, I'm going into the, the legal field or whatever, where can we start to use these techniques and not just for college kids with no experience, where do we start to apply this to everyone in careers or people maybe just jumping back into one? So th- this notion of uh, we have internships, but we also have tons of returnships, which is, you know, people trying to get back in, especially in technology businesses. So often people in the workplace, a lot of it is uh, women who uh, have gone away to have families. And then five years later, four years later, they come back in and the technology has changed. And I spent a lot of time talking with people who had successfully reentered and found that there were sort of four things to think about if you're returning into the workplace. Number one is to reframe your experience. So even if you haven't done exactly the new thing, if you haven't worked in that exact industry, reframe your experience so that at least you can say you've worked on analogous projects. So let's say you haven't worked exactly in the agile method with a particular coding language, find the thing that you've done that's closest to it or is analogous. A lot of people, for example, they've worked in, um, let's say, direct marketing, which is a relatively older term. The new way of expressing it is programmatic marketing or performance marketing. So don't say, I did direct marketing for 10 years. Say, I've been working on early forms of programmatic marketing and performance marketing, so you frame your experience in the language of today and the language of the future. And once again, if I were to reframe experience, I would do 30 days of homework, not about questions on how I should defend my own career from 10 years ago. I would go and look at white papers on the future of the industry that I'm trying to get into. And I would spend time saying, here's what I know with some fundamental principles, but I'm going to do it to help your business in this industry succeed in the future. So really think of reframing your past into the future. Don't just talk about your past and apologize that your skills are rusty, not good enough. That seems like you'd be in trouble if all you did was talk about how you're gonna be great at catching up. (laughs) That's not really a good starting point, right? Because they can hire somebody who's already caught up, theoretically. Exactly. So you you need to bring something credibly from the past into the future. A lot of it does have to do with language. Again, frame it in the language of the future, not in the language of the past. Number two is you actually have to go right into your fuel, especially your hard skills, and refresh them. That's why something like a returnship, where maybe you've got a structured program, you can do some online learning, you can do some night classes, you can get some mentorship. You can't fake it. You've got to fix your skills. And so programs like yours, programs like General Assembly, which have very practical, forward-thinking skill set building, you know, you've got to refresh some skill sets. You can't just fake it. Point number three is to reconnect your social networks. When you walk away, we talked about these career ecosystems, your career ecosystems get tired, they get dormant, they lose energy. So get back into kind of at every level, get back into it with refreshing who your experts are, you know, obviously your social profile and LinkedIn profile. A lot of people just walk in and in quotes, my Rolodex is old and they're dead. Refresh it, go back and reactivate some old relationships, find some new ones. It's another great thing about 
you know, joining maybe some industry associations of the current and future industry and find some new people, not just people from, you know, five, 10 years ago. The final thing is to reboot. And that has to do with your self-confidence. So many people, when they leave the industry, they come back, they feel out of it. They don't fit. They feel rusty. And you just need to build back your confidence. One of the great ways is, frankly, surround yourself with a lot of bright young people who are, you know, people who are doing well in the current industry and of the future. So I encourage people to get their confidence going. They have tons to give, and maybe they have tons to give to this hot, new, up-and-coming generation. And in return, that next generation can refresh them, make them more modern, make them more up-to-date. So those are four things, reframe, refresh, reconnect, and reboot, a strong strategy for getting back into the game. And what about the career inventory, this kind of annual size up? I really like that. Before we let you go, would you tell us how we can do that and why it's important? I really encourage people to take at least one day a year and really reflect on what happened in the previous year, take stock of what's going on with them currently, and to take a look ahead. And again, we work for thousands of hours a year and we get all this education, but we so infrequently take time out for ourselves. So in a career day or a half a day even, I would do one of these inventories, which is taking stock of my fuel levels, transportable skills, meaningful experiences, and enduring relationships, that notion of a career ecosystem. Where do I stand this year? Did I learn some new stuff? Did I bring some new things on? Maybe some of my great historical skills have gotten rusty. Just really take stock and and look at them. The career ecosystem, you totally have to look at it at least once a year. Who are the new people who are coming in? Have you lost a mentor or a great boss or a champion? Maybe your relationships have eroded or diminished a bit, or maybe they're really turbocharged. That's great to know. So that's point number one is to do that ecosystem and fuel inventory. The other thing is there's four great questions to ask. Number one, am I learning? Did I learn new skills this year? Number two, am I having impact on individuals, on my team, maybe on society at large? Question number three, am I having fun? We work so hard. It's got to be fun, mainly because fun keeps our energy levels up. And question number four, am I being fairly rewarded? And I encourage people just take those four, put your feet up, maybe give yourself a score of 10 on each of those. From year to year, sometimes people weight those four questions differently. Like early on, I encourage people kind of overweight that learning one because that's, again, accumulating lots of fuel. Because early on in your career, if you're getting a lousy score on am I learning, that's not a good thing. Even if you're making good money, it's fun, it's whatever, that's all fine. If you're not learning, you're going to have a problem down the road. So take a look at those four questions. You can weight them equally or dial them up or down and give yourself a score and just ask yourself next year, what do I aspire to do and what kinds of actions am I going to take? How do I dial up the learning component? How do I look, maybe I'm hungry for more impact and you can sign up inside or outside of work for some kind of activity, a not-for-profit thing, a community-based thing, spiritual, faith-based, whatever you want that you feel like you're getting more impact. You can look at the rewards thing. It's not whether you're maxing out on rewards. It's, am I 
being fairly compensated for my contribution? And does it seem to be building in a decent way? So each of these questions uh, can inspire you to take a serious look at the year behind, the year ahead, and to take some, some constructive action. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure you deliver? Really, the, the main message, Jordan, is there's so much career anxiety going on. There's so many choices, more than we've ever seen before. There's so much competition at home and abroad. There's so many voices and opinions going on. I'd really encourage people, you know, take this long view, build some fuel, take time out so that you get a career day for yourself. Look at how you're spending your time and making sure that ultimately you're feeling productive and you're feeling happy so that you can turn your anxiety into some constructive action. It's a long, long ride, and you got to get the most out of it because it's so long and such a big part of life. Brian, thank you so much. This has been excellent for both people that are just starting their career as well as those who've been in it for a while. I love the idea of taking that inventory and uh, making sure that we've got the right kinds of fuel together if we're in that stage of the career as well. And the book, The Long View, has much more like this for every stage of every career. So if you think, well, maybe this isn't for me because I've been working for a while or I've been, I'm already 20 years in the game, I would say think again and take a look at this book. There's a lot of wisdom in there. And when I plowed through it, I was very pleasantly surprised by a lot of the things that I read, some of which are contained here in the show and a lot more in the book. So thank you so much for your wisdom, both in the book and on the show today. Thank you so much, Jordan. Best of luck to you and, and your listeners as well. A lot of good stuff in this one. I really like the concepts of career fuel. Obviously, I'm a sucker for anything that involves making relationships and networking part of your career or part of your daily habits. I'm all about that, as well as transportable skills in these career inventories. It can be super useful for us if we actually put them into action. Not a lot of extra work, just the same amount of energy probably that you're putting into your career now, only focused in the right direction. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Brian on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as the other resources mentioned on the show, including the book, The Long View, Career Strategies to Help You Start Strong, Reach High, and Go Far. Now, of course, I'm also on Twitter at The Art of Charm. You can engage with me there. You can get some insights or punchy comments from me that might not appear anywhere else. Boot camp and live program details. If you want to learn a lot of this stuff live from coaches, the networking stuff, the relationship development stuff, that's what we do here at our live program. Check it out at theartofcharm.com. And we're sold out a few months in advance. So if you're thinking about it a little bit, get in touch ASAP, get some info from us so you can plan ahead. And check out our social capital challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or if you're here in the States, you can text CHARMED, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. It's all about improving your networking and your connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. We'll also email you that Fundamentals Toolbox I mentioned earlier on the show, and I've got videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward in your career and at home and in your personal life, and those are coming out every week. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text CHARMED here in the U.S. to 33444. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us, it's a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. 
Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.